the study today, if, you, if you're visiting here today, we're thrilled you're here. Uh, we have been studying for many months. I think almost every sermon I've given this year has been on leadership. And so the folks who are regulars here may go, oh boy, another uh, sermon on leadership. But I want, I want to say a few things about that. These things are really important. It's important for you to listen today. It's important for you to dwell on these things and think about these things. In another year or, or 12 or 14 months, we're going to go through a process to look at men and try to decide who are going to be qualified to be elders and deacons. And whoever we choose, we need to choose good quality people. We need people who meet the qualifications that God has given and we need quality men to lead this church. And so it's really important that we study these things and have full understandings of these things. I told the elders I'm going to teach these things to redundancy. And so if you get a little bored, maybe I'm doing my job for once in my life if you get a little bored. Uh, the song, these, these qualities of people are ancient. These are 2,000-year-old qualities. And they've not changed. And they won't change. And God has given us direction to help us know what kind of men should lead us in a way that's timeless. It'll endure as long as the world endures. If it's another 10,000 years, it'll be these qualities that are the kind of men that we need to lead and to follow the church. And so I want to encourage you to stick with us today. We're, we've got a lot of material to cover. Uh, and I believe it's going to be interesting and beneficial to you. The first quality that, that we find for a, a, an elder is blameless. And we're, going, we're not going to talk about his work today. We're just going to talk about qualities. Another sermon, we'll talk about the work. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, he says, A bishop then must be blameless. I'm not going to read all that verse, because if I did, I'd, I'd read it. 30 times today. And Titus, he says, if any be blameless. And the definition, if you'll notice here, is cannot be reprehended or not open to censure. He's irreproachable. In other words, nobody's out there saying, hey, this guy stole this money. Or this guy's cheated on his wife. There's not accusations about the man. And this is the idea of blameless. And so the way I've put this together, we're going to look at the passage as it's given, the definition, and we're going to see how it's used in some other passages if those are available. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 14, he says that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable. That's the same word as blameless in 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. Unrebukable under the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so with these things, we tend to get a little bit of a sense of blameless. He's a man who is unrebukable. It's hard to go and say, you did this wrong. You're guilty of this. It doesn't mean he's perfect. It doesn't mean that. It just means there's not accusations floating around about him. I want to look at another translation. I, we're, we're a King James church, okay? I know. I like the King James. We're going to look at some other translations you may not be familiar with. This is the American Standard Version, it says, the bishop therefore must be without reproach. That's just another little piece of supporting evidence. And here's an example. 1 Peter 5 verse 1, Peter wrote this book. The apostle Peter, the man who denied Jesus. The man who asked Jesus, if it's you, can I come out on the water and then sink? This same guy who three times denied the Lord. I want you to notice, the elders which are among you, I exhort who am also an elder. Was he blameless? 
He must have been. When we could look at things Peter did that were wrong, mistakes he made, failures, but he was a man who was blameless because he got forgiveness and he righted the ship and he began to live and walk the Christian life. So we're not talking about perfect men. We're not talking about men who've never had failures. We're talking about men who if they fail, they make it right. They repent and they serve the Lord. That's the idea of blameless. And so a general thought would be not a perfect man, but he should be a man of irreproachable character for truth, honesty, purity, uprightness. The next uh, quality is husband of one wife. This has been a challenging one. We've studied this a little bit not long ago when it came to deacons. But he says it this way in 1 Timothy 3, 2, a bishop then must be the husband of one wife. Titus says, if any be the husband of one wife. And the definition, as I understand it, is a one-woman man. He is a man who is dedicated to his wife. He is faithful to his wife, is how I understand this passage of Scripture. And so if we're going to look at another passage, I've chose 1 Timothy 5 verse 9, which says, Let not a widow be taken into the number under threescore years old, having been the wife of one man. Well, like I said, we covered this on deacons, but I want to cover it again. The church, back in this day, it could today as well, we could take in a widow and care for her. It would be absolutely right. Uh, there's a few qualifications, though. She has to be uh, over 60. Over 60. If she's under 60, she needs to work and care for herself. But at the age of 60, the church could take this woman in. We could provide her food. We could provide her a home. We could provide her medical care. We could pay for that out of the church treasury. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that, and this was done. But there were some qualities for this woman. She has to be the wife of one man. She had to be a one-man woman, faithful to her husband. And here comes the challenges. Some people will say, well, he can't have been a divorced man and be an elder. I don't believe that's necessarily true. Uh, some people say, well, he can't be a polygamist. I think that's probably true. He has to be a man who's dedicated to his wife. And here's the idea when we look at the widow, having been the wife of one man. Would we say we can't take care of her because her first husband died in a car wreck when he was 25? And now she's 60 and she's destitute and she's hungry. Would we say, no, her first, her first husband, who she was dedicated to, died in a car wreck so we can't take care of her? We wouldn't say that. We'd say, we'll take her in, we'll take care of her. And to be consistent, it's the same phrase, it's the same wording on the husband of one wife. A man whose wife died when they were young, a young married couple, and he marries again, I believe he can be an elder. A man whose first wife cheated on him and fornicated on him, and they divorce, and he marries again. He was faithful to his first wife. And they were divorced, and he's faithful to the next wife. He's a one-woman man. I believe he can be an elder. And I believe that's the teaching. Uh, other translations. Here I'm going to use the NIV. I'm not a big fan of the NIV, okay? 
I'm not putting these up here because I'm promoting the translations. It's another way of, of looking at this. 1 Timothy 3, 2. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife. That's how that one puts it. And so the general thought is he must be a one-woman man, a man dedicated to and faithful to his wife. <clears throat> vigilant. That's uh, a word we don't use a lot nowadays. A bishop then must be vigilant, he says in 1 Timothy 3 verse 2, and the definition is circumspect, prudent, or temperate. In other words, he's got to be a wise man. He's got to be a man of prudence. Uh, a man of self-control. Uh, we might think of the word vigilant to also mean watchful or careful. In Titus 2 verse 2, another passage that this same word is used, the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, is that same word, sound in faith, in charity, and patience. And so he's got to be a man who has self-control, control of his senses, control of his mouth, control of the things that he says. Uh... That's the kind of man this must be. In other translations, this is also uh, rendered as temperate in the New King James Version. So the general thought when it comes to vigilant is an elder should be careful with his conduct. He should be on his guard and watchful against sin in any form. He has to be a man who is vigilant or wise and prudent, careful and watchful is the idea of this man. Sober we would think would be a very simple uh, idea, but it's a little more complex than you might think. The bishop must be sober. Again, 1 Timothy 3, 2. Titus 1, 8 says, A lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate. And the definition of the word sober is of a sound mind, sane in one's senses. It doesn't simply mean not drunk, in fact, there are qualities that apply to drinking and alcohol, and we'll get to those in just a minute. But the idea, he has to have a good, solid mind and a, a sane person. Uh, this is very close to vigilant, which is kind of interesting. And again, in Titus 2, uh, the word temperate is used. It's the exact same Greek word as sober. It means self-control and control of your mind or control of your senses. Uh, another passage that is used is Titus 2 verse 5. To be discreet is the same Greek word as sober. To be discreet, chaste, keepers at home. This uh, admonition was given to the women in this passage. And so a sober man has control of his thoughts and words. He is thoughtful about what he says. He is discreet. He don't just tell everything he knows. Because elders are going to have knowledge of lots of situations. They're going to have knowledge of good things. They're going to have knowledge of bad things. They're going to have knowledge of problems and that are very personal in people's lives. And they've got to be discreet with that. They've got to be very careful with what they say and who they say it to. And this kind of all fits in with the idea of sober. In the New King James, uh, another translation, the word is described as sober-minded. To be careful with what you say and what you think. And so the general thought would be a man of a sound mind and firm self-control of all his passions. He's not a man who flies off at the handle. Of good behavior. I got to thinking about this one day and I thought, isn't that kind of given? 
Isn't it just kind of, we ought to know that there's got to be a, a good behavior. That seems to be, you would think, we would know that. I think that's true of all Christians. We ought to all behave and be good. This is the quality that's given of good behavior. It's very simple there. And the definition is well-arranged, seemly, or modest. And as I began to really study this in detail, I found it really interesting. Uh, the word modest, and this is the same Greek word as good behavior, is the same word as modest in 1 Timothy 2 verse 9. He says, in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. Appropriate apparel. What is modest? We think of modest clothing. What is modest? It's not too low. It's not too high. It's not too tight. It covers enough. It's appropriate. That's what we think. It's appropriate. Uh, other translations, such as the American Standard, translate this as orderly. Uh, in the right order would be the idea. Uh, the ESV calls it self-controlled. So of good behavior seems to be doing things in an appropriate way, conducting yourself in a modest or appropriate way or having self-control in those things. And so the general thought is he shouldn't be messy in his appearance or rough or rude or insensitive in his manners. Elders are not here because they're the boss. They have authority. They have authority in the church. But they're not here to rule with the iron hand. They're to conduct themselves with appropriate behavior. Orderly, modest behavior is the idea. Next is the phrase given to hospitality. Again, 1 Timothy 3, 2 simply says he must be given to hospitality. Titus 1, 8 says he has to be a lover of hospitality. Uh, this is a really interesting one. The definition of the word hospitality is fond of guests, generous to guests, given to a lover of, a user of hospitality. The word hospitality comes from the root word hospital. And people go to a hospital and people take care of them. They bring them their meals. They help them take a bath. They care for them. That's the idea. A man that's going to be a leader in the church has got to be a man who opens his home and brings people into his home. And this requires several things. A wife's going to have to be on board with that. And so we're not just talking about the things that apply just to a man, but it's going to apply to a wife, and it's also going to apply to children. We've got to have a home that's welcoming for the work of the church, that can be used for the work of the church. Other passages that use the same word as in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9, use hospitality one to another without grudging. So I want you to give a little bit of thought to this passage. Use it, he says. Use it. Open your home to others. It's a real simple concept, and it's a more difficult one to do. Because when I come home and I tell my wife, we got company coming. We're, there's going to be some changes in our home. There's going to be some activity that we're going to start straightening up. We're going to start cleaning up because she wants the house to look good. It should look good. 
And we get prepared. And so there's a lot of work that goes on to a wife. A lot of the burden goes on to a wife in this idea of using hospitality. But I want you to notice what he says, one to another without grudging. Without grudging. You know what? When you have people in your home, they bring kids into their home, things get messed up. It's kids, isn't it? And and when my family was young and we traveled, my wife was on pins and needles about Zane destroying something in the home. Okay, he was a typical young boy. He's he's active and hope he don't tear something up. And we just we worried about those things. But there's going to be a lot of work that goes into, and we can't look at one family or another and go, well, I'm not going to have them in my home. An elder can't do that. We Christians shouldn't do that. We'll be fair with that. And there's a reason this is so important, and we're going to cover that a little more when we get to the work of an elder, but suffice it to say now, an elder's got to open his home to people and help people, bring them in and care for them. There are going to be times he needs to have discussions that are difficult, and the place to do that's in a home. There's going to be times he has to get to know the flock and get to know people and build a relationship. And the way that we do that is around a table with a meal. As elders got to know their flock and know their sheep, as if an elder don't know his sheep, he's no shepherd. And so hospitality is a critical thing and we've got to use that to grow the church, to edify the people who are part of the church. Other translations. uh, I like the Young's Literal. It's an interesting one. It says a friend of strangers. I found that interesting. People who will have strangers into their home. I had a visit with Tom Hicklin. Y'all remember Tom he, his, his father grew up in Arkansas. He said, I spent summers in Arkansas when I was a child, a teenager. I'd go to Arkansas. He said, there were people who would come, travelers, and knock on my grandmother's door and say, uh, we need a place to stay tonight. And said, my grandmother would say, well, we've got one bed. You're welcome to it. Said she didn't know these people from anybody. They just knocked on her door. I, you got a bed. I'll let you have my bed. We'll have supper at five. And said she would feed those strangers and let them stay in there. Would you do that? I want to tell you, somebody knocks on my door, my wife's ready to get a gun. Who is that? What's going on? Some strangers here. It's not the Ups man, it's not FedEx. What do they want? Hospitality means that we care about people enough to open our home. Uh, a couple examples I want to look at. Genesis chapter 18, beginning of verse 1. The Lord appeared unto him, this is Abram, in the plains of Mamre. And he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. Abram's there at about noon. It's a hot day, and he's sitting in the tent. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground. He said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. He begins immediately to care for these strangers. This is the nature of hospitality. Don't leave. Let me get you some water. Just sit down under the tree and rest. We'll keep reading. He says, and I will fetch a morsel of bread. 
I want you to remember that, a morsel. And comfort your hearts, and after that you shall pass on. For therefore are ye come to your servant. And they said, So do as thou hast said. And Abram hasted unto the tent unto Sarah. Who did he go to? He went to his wife. He didn't, he didn't come and say, You knew these guys were coming. He didn't say, Sarah, we've had this on the calendar. He runs in the tent to Sarah and he says, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes upon the earth. He says, Woman, get in that kitchen and get to work. That's what he said. You go to work. And Abram ran to the herd, fetched a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man, and he hasted to dress it. He went and pulled a calf out of the flock, and he said, you kill that calf and cut it up. And he took butter and milk and the calf, which he had dressed, and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree, and they did eat. This is hospitality. We didn't know these people were coming. I got to doing research on this. I, I found it interesting. Three measures of meal. How much was that? Matt, you remember, don't you? Fifty gallons. Fifty gallons of flour. They killed a calf. And I'm going to tell you, they made enough biscuits to serve everybody. They probably served Abram and his wife and all the servants. Everybody ate. A huge feast. Meat and bread and butter. That's what they had. And, and this is the idea of hospitality. They're generous to guests. You see, they're careful to help guests. In Romans 12 verse 3, distributing to the necessity of saints given to hospitality. Uh, it's a critical part of being an elder. Uh, and so our general thought would be a man who will welcome into his house members of his flock and also strangers. Apt to teach. A, a bishop must be apt to teach. Titus 1.9 says it this way, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convince the gainsayers. And the definition would be apt and skillful in teaching. He must be a man who teaches the word of God. Other passages, 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 5, the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patience, and meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God, peradventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Uh, he has to be a man who understands the word of God and is capable of communicating the word of God. I believe he has to teach publicly and privately. He's got to have skill to do that. That's what it means to be apt, is my understanding. Have skill in teaching. Other translations, the new King James simply says able to teach, uh, is what it says. An example of Acts 20.20, 20, uh, an example for us, Acts 20.20, 20, how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house was the idea the apostle conveyed. Elders have a responsibility to feed the flock of God. 
And there are times that we feed everybody. That's what a shepherd does at times. He feeds the whole flock. There are times he takes one sheep and he spoon feeds one sheep. He teaches, you see, and helps one sheep to grow by study and by teaching that one sheep. And so a man has to have an understanding of Scripture. A man who has a strong understanding of the Christian religion is a skilled teacher of that religion. It's the idea of apt to teach. Holding fast the faithful word. Let's go through and look at that. It's slightly different. He has to hold fast or hold securely the faithful word as he has been taught. And so to hold fast means to adhere to. Uh, he's got to be able to exhort and convince the gainsayers. This little bit of a challenging. What is a gainsayer? Uh, to exhort means to teach. It also means to encourage. And to convince means to refute. To show that someone's wrong. Or, and a gainsayer is one who disputes or contradicts the word of God. Now, I don't believe that... Uh, that David and Garland have got to be able to refute every tenet of Buddhism. I don't believe they've got to have to, they do that. They've got to be able to teach the truths of the church. And if someone in the church contradicts something that's truth, they've got to be able to defend that. They've got to be able to exhort the doctrines of the church. Not every crazy doctrine that might come along, but someone who might come here and contradict the teachings of the church. Another passage where this is used is Acts 13, verse 45. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. See, these folks contradicted the teachings of truth, the, the teachings of Paul. And the elders got to be able to defend those faiths. It doesn't mean they've got to convert those people to their way of thinking. They've got to exhort and convince to show their error or show the wrong is the idea. Other translations, uh, the ESV says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Doesn't mean he has to convert them to his way of thinking, but he's got to stand and show that they're wrong. Another example, Acts 18.28 uh, for he mightily convinced the Jews and that publicly, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. Uh, he didn't convert all the Jews. He didn't convert them to his way of thinking, but he showed the error of their thoughts and the error of their ways. And so a general thought is a man who is willing to exhort or teach, a man who's willing to instruct and who can convince and persuade others. We have to have a man who has a firm understanding of the scriptures. Not given to wine. Uh, as we move on, 1 Timothy 3, verse 3 now, a bishop must be not given to wine. Uh, it says that plainly in Titus 1, 7. The definition of not given to wine is not staying near wine. That is tippling, a topper, one who drinks frequently or to excess. It means a guy who habitually drinks alcohol. This man cannot be an elder is the idea. This is the only place in the New Testament where this word is used. Uh, this phrase, given to wine. Uh, there's other places that talk about wine, but this is the only one where this one in particular uh, is found. 
Other translations, the ESV says not a drunkard. Uh, an example for that, I chose 1 Corinthians 9.27, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. The, uh, the apostle said to Timothy, take a little wine. Use it as a medicine. He said, for thy stomach's sake. Uh, it's not always wrong to drink wine. It's, it's wrong for an elder to do that. He, he can't habitually drink it. He might use it as a medicine. Uh, he's not to be a social drinker, not a, a weekend drinker, not to drink a little at a party. He, he's to be a man who has control of his faculties. A sober man has his mind, doesn't he, at his faculties. And so he's not to be a man who habitually drinks this because they tend to be drunks. People who drink a lot and drink regular they tend to get drunk. It's the nature of alcohol. And so he's got to be a man who has self-control and temperance in this area. And so a general thought is, he's not a man who habitually drinks intoxicating drinks. No striker. First uh, Timothy 3, verse 3 says he's just not a striker. This is not a phrase we typically use uh, anymore. In first or Titus, rather, Titus 1, verse 7 uh, it says no striker as well. And the definition is contentious or quarrelsome. Uh, we might would think this means that he can't be a person who fights, uh, physically fights. I think that's going to come here in just a moment uh, with not a brawler. But these are two terms that are pretty similar, no striker and not a brawler. Uh, and this is the only passage again in the New Testament where this word is used, uh, no striker. But evidently he can't be someone who's highly argumentative uh, New King James translates it as not quarrelsome. And so evidently he's got to be a man who, who controls himself and doesn't just allow his passions to get in control of him and, and just get argued, argue, argue, and get wound up. Sometimes you've got to stop and listen. Evidently that's the idea behind no striker. A man who is not argumentative or quarrelsome. Not greedy of filthy lucre. Uh, once again, in First Timothy three three, and also First Titus one verse seven, uh, he can't be a man who's greedy for money. Uh, another passage, First uh, Timothy three eight, speaks of the deacons in the same way, not greedy of filthy lucre. They're not in this for the money. Uh, other translations, not covetous. And I didn't write down which one that was. I guess I'll let y'all guess. That can be your homework. Go look that up. Uh, he's not a covetous man. And John 12, verse 4 to 6, Then saith one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. A man who's after money will not be a good leader of the church. In fact, he will rob the church and the sheep will be scattered. And so a general thought would be simply a man who is content and not greedy. <clears throat> he must be patient. Uh, I didn't get them all like I should have. Patience is pretty simple. Uh, an example in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 14, uh, 
Now we exhort you, brethren, warn that are them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, and be patient toward all men. I failed to get my definition on there, but it's pretty plain. He has to be a man who is patient. And the general thought is, a man who with patience will care for the flock. Not a brawler. Uh, is very similar to no striker. Uh, but this is found in, in Timothy 3. Not a brawler. He's peaceable, not contentious. He stames from fighting. Uh, Titus 3 verse 1, Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. He's got to be a man who, who is careful. Uh, he doesn't lose control. 1 Timothy 3, 3 in the New King James, uh, not quarrelsome. We've talked about that a little bit. And so in general, he's got to be a peaceable man who does not tend to fight or, or be a quarrelsome man. Not covetous. You'd kind of think this is covered, but there's a little bit of redundancy here. Uh, he's to not be a covetous man. He's not a man who loves money or his after money. Uh, Hebrews 13 verse 5 says, Let your conversation be without covetousness. Your behavior, your manner of life. Uh, other translations just simply say not covetous. For an example, we could take and look at Acts chapter 5. I uh, will not turn and read that just for sake of time, but you've got uh, two folks who basically lie about the money that they were giving to the church, uh, Ananias and Sapphira, and because of that, they lost their lives. And so the general thought is he's just got to be a man who is not covetous. Uh, one that ruleth well his own house. First Timothy 3 verse 4 says that exactly. Having his children in subjection with all gravity. The definition is to rule over or to rule a family well. In Romans chapter 12 beginning at verse 8 he says, Or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. And so this man has got to oversee the, the home that he has, oversee the wife, he's got to oversee the children, and he's got to rule well is the idea. Other translations, Young's Literal says his own house leading well, having children in subjection with all gravity. This man's kids can't be out running wild. Uh, they can't disobey. They have to be in subjection to the father uh, of the home. And so one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. I want to I move to that idea. Uh, the definition of having his children in subjection is obedience or subjection. They are obedient. They reverence and respect. They honor uh, the father. I heard a fellow say one time, he said, how do you know uh, children are going to obey a, the parent? And he said, I think from across a room a dad can point at a child and they'll stop doing whatever they're doing. I said, well, my kids might do that and they might not. But we can all look at a child and know if they're in subjection to parents or if they disobey parents. It's pretty easy to tell. Another passage, 1 Timothy 2 verse 11, he says, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. 
And so the idea of subjection is that she's underneath the man. And this is the same thing with his children. They are in subjection, and the idea of gravity is that they honor uh, the father. Another translation, New King James, having his children in submission with all reverence. Uh, again, Titus 1 verse 6 in the New King James, If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. So it's a pretty simple idea. Uh, having faithful children, not accused of right or unruly. This defines for us who they are having to be faithful to. They're not accused of riotous living or unruly living to their father. And so in this passage, the idea of faithful is simply trusty or faithful. Accused means accusation or cards. Riot means excess or partying or wild living. And unruly simply means to be insubordinate. In Acts chapter 16, I'm going to skip these because I'm going to run short of time. He must be a man who has control of his family. His children have to be obedient. They can be just that. They can be children at home. When a, when a man grows up and leaves a home, he's no longer under his father's rule. And nearly 30 years ago, when I got married, I left, I left my dad's home. I'm, I'm not under his rule anymore. And if he came to me and said, paint your house yellow, I'd, I'd say I'm not going to do that. Now, if I had lived at home with him... And he said, you go paint the house yellow. I said, yes, sir, because I was under his rule. And so we can take those things too far. But I think the idea and the general thought is a man who guides and rules his wife and family. His children obey him. That's the general idea of what this man has to be. <clears throat> Not a novice. First Timothy 3.6 says it just that way. Not a novice. He cannot be a new convert. Uh, this is the only place in the New Testament where this word is used. Young's literal says not a new convert. So that's pretty simple. Uh, he has to be an experienced Christian man. He must have a good report of them which are without. In other words, he's got to have a good reputation in the community. Uh, he's got to have a good record, a good report, or a good witness. Luke 22 puts it this way, And they said, What need we any further witnesses? For we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. They knew there was a witness, a report, a reputation. Uh, other translations means good testimony in the New King James. A man well thought of in the community has a good reputation, a good name. When I do this kind of work in other congregations, I'll go into a community and I'll talk to the people with whom an elder does business. I'll talk to his employees. I'll, I'll talk to people in the community and say, what do you think about this man? And we'll get an outside report of that man. Not self-willed, uh, as in Titus 1.7, means self-pleasing, self-willed, arrogant. It also can mean self-promoting. A man who promotes his own self to be in authority. Another passage this is used in 2 Peter 2 verse 10. He says, But chiefly them that walk after the flesh and the lust of uncleanness and despise government, presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. He's got to be a man who puts the will of God first. 
and the needs of the church first and not just what he himself wants. Other translations uh, that use this in Titus 1.7 and this is the Bible in, in basic English uh, for it is necessary for a bishop to be a man of virtue as God's servant, not pushing himself forward. And so he doesn't necessarily promote and politic for the office. He, he's a man who has a desire to serve. An example in 3 John 9, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes who loveth to have the preeminence among them receiveth us not. And so the general thought is not a man who is selfish and or is campaigning for the office. Zane, where I'm at on time. Okay. <clears throat> We've got just a few more. Uh, I'd like to finish this up. I hate to break this up now, so just bear with me. He's got to be a man who is not soon angry, uh, is the term in Titus 1, not soon angry. He can't be prone to anger or quick-tempered. Uh, that's the only passage where this is used. He can't be a man who has uh, is excitable in that way. Uh, so he's a man who controls his emotions. Uh, the New King James says not quick-tempered. A lover of good men. Uh, this is interesting because uh, I think every Christian ought to love good men. We ought to love good people. Uh, but the definition of lover of good men is just fond of good or a promoter of virtue. That's the only passage where this is used. Uh, the New King James says a lover of what is good. And so he's a man who loves goodness and good things. Just. Uh, not only is he sober and temperate, but he's just. Uh, this word is in a wide sense. Righteousness, uprightness, virtue, or a man who keeps the commands of God. Uh, in Matthew 13, verse 49, it says, So shall it be at the end of the world, the angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just. He's a man who lives a, 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 a just and righteous life. Uh, in Ephesians 6, 1, the word right, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. It's the same, uh, exact same word. Uh, upright is the word used in the ESV for this word. And so he's a man who does and thinks what is right. And finally, holy. Uh, he's to be a holy man. He's pious and holy. Another passage is 1 Timothy 2 verse 8. I will therefore that men pray everywhere lifting up holy hands. Uh, another translation, New King James says just holy. And so the general thought is he's a man who's holy. A man who lives in a holy life. He tries to live a godly life. I'm going to ask you to get out your songbooks now. I've, I've preached a little longer than I like to. I felt like it was important to cover these things. I know these things are not things we talk about a whole lot. We don't talk about being not a striker that often. But these are critical things. In the book of Second. Corinthians 13 verse 5 he says examine yourselves whether you be in the faith I want to ask you all, all these things we've looked at do you meet these qualifications we're, we're coming up on a time where we're going to thoroughly examine most every man in this congregation 
And we're going to look at these qualities and we're going to hold you up against them and we're going to look and say, yes, no. And that's hard. It's hard to take a good strong look in the mirror and look at ourselves and say, am I this way or am I not? It's, it's easy for me to try to give myself a pass. I'm not patient, but here's why I'm not patient. is because of these people that aggravate me. They don't work that way with God. Examine yourself whether you have these qualities. In 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning of verse 3, According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. We have everything we need we have everything we need in Scripture to have elders, to have deacons. You, the men of this congregation, everything you need to be a good elder is in this book. And we, you need to examine yourself and say, do I have it or do I not? <clears throat> He says, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is through the world, in the world through lust. I see a lot of places, I go a lot of places, I see a lot of people, and I see a lot of men in the church who are just willing to stay where they're at. The Apostle Paul said, I count not myself to have apprehended. You've got to have the attitude, I'm not happy where I'm at. I want to be what God wants me to be. Are you the man God wants you to be? Or are you the man who God's made you? Are you the man who you have made? Well, that's, that's challenging. I know where I fail. I don't know where all you fail. I know where I do. I'll tell you what he's teaching us here is about things that change our lives. Things that change us. And there's not a person here today who hadn't been changed by the Word of God. Every person here has changed to become more like Jesus. Are you where you need to be? Is the question. Are you what you need to be? And I run into a lot of men who say, well, I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't want to lead a prayer. I don't want to lead a song. I don't want to wait on the table. I don't want to do this or that. Why? Why not? He goes on to say this, besides this, giving all diligence. Add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, to temperance patience, to patience godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness, charity. Add these things. You, you don't start out having all these qualities. No man starts out in life having all those things. Those things come to us through time and through effort. You see, effort. Through making a decision along the line, I'm going to try to grow. I'm going to put effort to this. 
I'm not going to be satisfied where I am here. I want to try to be what God wants me to be. You know why? Because we need elders. We need them. We need deacons. If we don't get some more, we'll be in a wreck. A wreck. Now, he says, if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. God will make you fruitful if you apply yourself. He will help you to grow to be the man he wants you to be. The woman he wants you to be. You probably don't have all these things. But you can get them through effort and through desire. He says, but he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. So I want to encourage and exhort everyone here today to be active, to pursue these things. Not every one of you men here today will ever be elders. Not all of you. Not every one of you. But if you'll pursue these things and add these things to your life, you'll be a better man. A better husband. A better father. So pursue these things and add them to your life. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you'd like to know more about this subject or any other Bible topic, send us a message at our Facebook page, The Church of Christ, Wheeler Area.